Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Welcome to Tent Talks with Stephen Backhouse. My name is Bradley Jersak. I'm a friend of the show, a friend of Stephen, and I'm also the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada. And I am a core faculty member of the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice. And you can check us out at irpj.org if you'd consider coming to study with us, or at least finding out what we're about. So I've just released a new book called Out of the Embers, and the subtitle is Faith After the Great Deconstruction. In that book, I'm addressing this overly trendy word that causes me to twitch sometimes, but it is rather a movement right now. And I wanted to address it. And the way I did that was I want to come in with a different angle that says folks are having different and disorienting experiences and every story needs to be heard. So probably empathy is a much better way to come at this. One part of my book includes what I call seven sleepers who are the great deconstructionists in history. And one of those is Kierkegaard. And of course, that led me to check in with Stephen because he's my Kierkegaard expert. And one thing that he's also helping me do is is let you know about the book through having a series of four interviews with significant people and in very different worlds where I'm gonna ask them a series of questions that relate to deconstruction. Well, we've had two discussions so far, uh, one with Brian Zahn, one with David Hayward, and this week we talked with Felicia Morell, and so you're going to enjoy her. She is a certified master life coach and former ordained pastor. She spent over 20 years in church leadership, and she is the author of a book called Truth Encounters, and she is an int- a trusted interpreter of the black voice in America, and she helped me co-write a chapter by that title in my book because I really wanted to get it right. I, I could not speak for the black community, but I think their voice is so important that I wanted to speak as a student of that community. And then she came in as my primary mentor. And she especially stands in the legacy of Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman, who was a spiritual father to Martin Luther King Jr. And I would say that she is a a love activist, um, very similar to the Sikh author right now, Valerie Carr, who wrote See No Stranger. Felicia Morell would be be the black Valerie Carr in my life. And so she, she steps in and so for her deconstruction and the, the stories around it are very different when you come from a black perspective of, and you could say a marginalized community that stands outside the status quo. And I think that's what comes to my mind when the book of Hebrews in the Bible says we need to go outside the camp to where Jesus is, because the one who hung on the cross is going to be fairly close to the community that hung on trees, let's say the lynching trees that that we read about in American history. Oh, wait, you're not allowed to read about that anymore. Sorry. But maybe James Cone, the cross and the lynching tree can give you a good insight onto that. As for a living friend, Felicia Morell, is going to come and she's going to speak to us about deconstruction from her point of view and you are going to love her because I sure do. I've asked her especially here today to talk about uh, her perspective on deconstruction and the things that that I wrote and frankly parts of which she co-wrote in my in my book Out of the Embers but um, I'm so glad to have you here. I'm delighted to be with you Brad. Thanks for having me. Well uh, let's just jump right in and so the first thing I want to look at is is this word deconstruction and it's so popularly 
used today that it's virtually a catchphrase for a, a whole range of experiences, voluntary, involuntary, liberating, traumatic, personal, social. And um, from my perspective, it involves dismantling or restructuring our our belief systems, religious or ideological, and our practices as that follow. And so understood this way, one may under, experience a process of disorientation, reorientation. And I think that has perils, but I also think it has great possibilities. So Felicia, in your world, in your story, I'm, I'm wondering what other words or metaphors best describe the phenomena, what it looks like in the communities you work with. And I would love to hear examples, pitfalls, breakthroughs, whatever you have for us today. This is such an interesting word and topic, and it feels like we've been in it a long time. I just have to say that I'm really excited about Out of out of the Embers and its offering in the world. And I think it's it's going to be a timeless classic for a lot of people on their journey um, when they get to this place. For me, I think my work is largely one-on-one. I do a lot of spiritual companioning, and, and that work particularly is the work of accompanying, listening, um, sharing and bearing witness. Um, it's being human in the experience of one another with all of our F-ups and our complexities and our beauties and our joys, all of it. But I think, you know, for those of us who have maybe, because this word feels very, very, very specific to uh, those formed in a Christian tradition, but I'm finding in the world of spiritual companion that people in other faith traditions kind of have their own deconstruction or unraveling that period of detachment that needs to happen. But the thing that I have found similar as a thread through this has been in a carrot on stick religion that uses imperfections to keep us chasing healing or chasing after wholeness or chasing blessings. Too often we hand our power over to something outside ourselves, right? And so when that happens, we're always looking for external validation, external permission. We are led by the opinions of others or what other people think, what others say is true and right, how we should live, how we should dress, how we should talk, who we should love, who we can sleep with, what we should read, what movie we can watch what we're to believe most of our lives, whether it's parents or religious leaders or coaches, our bosses, someone outside of ourselves tells us what to do. They tell us how to be. So it feels natural to, and I'm using air quotes, but let uh, let someone else control us. And we have that external guide and that feels natural until it doesn't. And so what I've been sitting in is how deconstruction, which feels like a rupture almost from you're going through this course of life that's normal, normal, normal. It's just the rhythm you're living and then something happens. And sometimes that might happen naturally or unnaturally, sometimes with invitations, sometimes with trauma. But part of what happens in all of that is this need to take my power back, this need to go against the flow of everything I've once believed. And as I've been watching this play out now for a number of years, I'm struck, Brad, by Psalm 32.8. And it's just, it's a piece of it that ends with like, I'll guide you with my eye. And then um, he goes on in verse nine to talk about, you know, not being led like a mule or a horse or whatever with a bit or bridle. And just the invitation of being guided by the eye. What does it look like to be led by the eye of love, you know, um, to be led from the inside out instead of the outside in? And so the process of deconstruction, at least for me, has been something of allowing those pillars of certainty and arrogance to collapse so that I can join love in the dance of unknowing that requires one, humility, two, trust. And then as you journey through that, it becomes its own kind of homecoming of moving from external to internal. So I think in my community, I've been seeing that process, that invitation of moving from 
external power to internal power, external agency to internal agency, external validation to internal validation, external guidance to internal guidance, grounding from the outside, controlling from the outside to being allowing to be controlled inside by the eye of love. That's so good. I can see why people would want you as a coach and spiritual director. I mean, that that direction inwards, right? You know, it's almost an ironic term, isn't it? Spiritual director, because when you do it well, you're that's exactly not what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I, other this than why direct- I do not use it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. You mean you don't demand perfect obedience from your clients? Oh, come on. Wow. How do you get anything done? <laughs> Just to clarify, how can I accompany you today? Like, we are Uh, on a journey. How can I accompany you? That's a beautiful imagery. Yeah. When you talk about the eye there, do you have anything else? Can you specify what that means for me? Like, uh, from an internal perspective, being guided by the eye, what does this mean? Yeah. That reference for me also comes from the biblical narrative, which is probably more in the gospels and I don't know the actual reference, but of when the eye is clear, the whole body is full of light. Yeah. And one of my spiritual practices each morning is to, is to wake up and say, um, all that is eternal within me greets the wonders of this day. And, and then to intentionally turn my face face to face um, towards the eye of love, the ear of love that I can participate in the dance of life and be led by love. And so I'm allowing love to come to me and love to flow through me. And it's just, it's just how I, I start my day. But when I talk about that, um, I'm thinking of personifying, you know, the Trinity. Um, I think it was our friend chair. I read this just the other day that transcendence has a, has a name. Was that has a face, yeah. Has a face. <laughs> yeah. Has a face. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. And so that for me would be, you know, the eye of transcendence that I think about greeting Father, Son, Spirit, um, you know, the Trinity face to face to face. And and in that eye, there is there is guidance, there is clarity, there is belonging, there's acceptance, there's everything we need in that. In that face to face to face. And so when the eye is clear, when it's not filled with illusion, when it's not filled with delusion, when um, there's not skepticism or cynicism or doubt or whatever, um, and that's definitely not my eyes because my eyes can always have those lenses from time to time, but love, love's eyes always clear and whole and yes towards us, you know? And so what I want to do is turn my face towards the eye of love so that my being sees what love sees. I am so glad I asked that follow-up question. <laughs> that was the, There's a poetry to what you're saying. There's an imagery to it that makes it so vivid and comes alive for me. Um, yeah, I, I'm really grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I also want to move into some past, present, future kind of questions now. So, you know, from my book, that middle section of the book, I'm look especially the central section where I'm looking at these who I think are experts, right? I talk about how, you know, if deconstruction is a mastectomy, you don't invite a plumber to do it. You want you want the people who really are thorough and and expert and even ruthless. So I, you know, how I looked at um uh, Moses and Plato, the Cappadocians, Voltaire, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, Simon Weil. That was in the central section. And of course, as you know, I, I picked up some more voices in the second part. But I'm wondering, in your case, um, who've been the most trusted influences, historically or recently, um, guides who've shaped your ver- journey? And so that could be voices you've most internalized, um, great names from the past, but also personal mentors along the way. Yeah. This, oh my gosh, I'm struck as I really like sit and think about this question. The first thing that I'm struck by really is two things parallel. So the first thing I'm struck by is I, while I've always read and held deep admiration for Black women writers, um, particularly Dr. Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, um, Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, like I've I've read 
most of their books and that kind of thing. When I think about being internalized, I I feel like in some ways there's there's probably some residue of who they are as women and people and their care for justice and for right alignment is there. But but parallel to that, what I'm most struck by, Brad, is the fact that most of my teachers have been men. You know, like I've read a lot of Black women writers, but most of my teachers have been like physical teachers, classroom teachers, church leaders, pastors have been men and particularly white men. And and so um, I think for me, in some ways, that part of my own unraveling has been intentionally holding and the masculine and the feminine expression, but also welcoming non-gendered expressions, right? And so that I've had to be really intentional about seeking out writers and thought leaders and people and looking for resonance in some of their ideas beyond just, you know, people that I've normally read. And I think that that for me has been part of my own process of deconstruction, because before I was too rigid about what I believed was right and who I believed was right. And so yeah. I was looking for voices that match my my own bias of what I thought was right. In more recent years, um, probably the last decade or two, I would have to say that I've largely been shaped by the work of our friend Paul Young. And so if you squeeze me, probably either the Bible's going to come out or something Paul Young has said is going to come out. <laughs> um, but also I've internalized a lot of Howard Thurman. And and I have to specifically go back four years. I think, um, well, now it's been seven while the world moves on. I think in the uprising of personalities and crises and things like that, it's very easy to give yourself to anger. And I had been an angry person in my life. And so while anger is good, I don't want to in any way um, give the thought that it's bad, but anger for me had not been well used. And so it came with a lot of rage and a lot of violence. And so a lot of my own healing and transformation with love was learning how to be softer, tender. I'm still a very fierce mama bear kind of person. That's just my personality. But I didn't need a destructive anger. I didn't need to give myself over to that. And so in the last seven years, what I had to look for were people who stood for righteous righteousness and justice, but did it through the work of love. And that for me has been largely Howard Thurman, largely Valerie Carr. I, I am so pleased to say you you were the one who introduced me to both of them. And um I I'm I'm so grateful. I I can feel like how I want to further internalize their voices, but wow, and the resonance I feel it they both feel so much like I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You know, the very the reasons why I'm attracted to and transformed by the Sermon on the Mount seem to just play out in in their writings again and and I'm a little bit like you I think where my inclination towards love is not simply temperament it's an act of repentance for the anger and rage in the backstory yeah. and um <clears throat> and I think sometimes pe you know, people forget that you know when they meet someone who who's a person of peace who who uh is is committed to the way of love that maybe they just think well yeah that's just her though <laughs> it's like well, it's who you're becoming, and it's but it's you've done the work. I mean, that's that's you're describing what doing the work is. I think. Um, let's let's look into the present now. In the communities you represent and serve, and and I'm I'm especially interested in the social, but you do the one-on-one -on -one kind of stuff, and then also in the black community, of course that whether you like it or not, you represent that community and that culture and all all those gifts um, to someone like me. And at the same time, I think it's it's fair to say there's significant crises afoot in this moment in time in your world. 
And, and you've experienced that in multiple cities now on different registers, like that I think, if I hear you right, have been quite, have been striking to you, like, wow, it was much more difficult here or there. And, and so there's crises happening. Could you tell us about what's presenting most intensely at this moment and maybe how to best address those challenges, uh, both in the communities themselves and those who'd love to be better allies? And, uh, Maybe I'll ask the follow-up question now too, just and then you can rule. Um, assuming that one aspect of deconstruction often includes detachment, alienation, and even exclusion from your family or community of origin, you know, how do we find a renewed sense of belonging and healthy attachment and trusted community? So I guess that is my two questions. What are the crises? And then also yeah. um how how can we find restoration and renewal? Again, I, I think this is such a necessary thing to think about. And actually, it's probably the one thing that I think about the most, if I'm quite honest. I I feel deeply when I enter cities, we we have moved a lot. I love being a Black woman. I, I love who I am and how God crafted me to be. So I'm very honored to be who I am. It carries with it uh, I would have to say a special grace. I was trying to think of a word to describe it, but but because of the climate of times, you know, there there's things that I have to consider when I enter a city or in our town to think about that some of my friends don't necessarily have to think about. And so we have lived in now our fourth state in four years. No, our fifth state, our fifth state. So Georgia, New Mexico. Minnesota, Florida, and now Arizona. So our fifth state in four years. And the first thing that I am aware of when I go to a city is energies. Um, Some cities feel very heavy. Some cities feel very light. Some cities carry an impression about it. But the one thing that's consistent for me, the thread across all the different states that we've lived in has been my concern for people. And and in each city, it's very interesting, Brad, because there are, every city seems to have better parts of towns and worse parts of towns. But one of the things that I have noticed um, through each place that we've been has been the increased number of um, homeless encampments around. There's been a lot. And so what's most pressing is people and the thread of cause and effect. So you can't worry about housing without thinking about heating or feeding small children, the rising cost of food and gas. Um, What happens when someone gets behind? One, most people today are living paycheck to paycheck to paycheck and getting behind one month or even two. And then the consequences of that, um, how it's really all tied together. And so we try to sometimes compartmentalize evictions versus, you know, affordable wage versus housing, rising housing costs versus the cost of eggs right now. Everyone is talking about the cost of gas, but, but for people that are living wage earners that are, or below living wage earners, one of that thing is a domino effect and it becomes a cataclysmic kind of change of events that happens as a result of one thing. And it's, and so the fix isn't always simple, right? And I think that's the hardest thats the hardest thing for me. And so a lot of times, even when I am listening to ideas about theology things or whatever, from a place of, I want to use an overused word, which is privilege, but from a place of where I am not as concerned about, you know, are my lights going to get cut off? Do I have food to feed my kids? All of that. I can create ideas and theories and things that sound really good. But when I am in the trenches of living day to day, that's not the first thing that's on my mind. And so that first and foremost is always with me. And I think that's the thing that when I think about Thurman and Jesus and the disinherited, or when I think about James Cone and other Black liberation theologians, what they were trying to offer the world and still are trying to offer the world is how are the people in the in these day-to-day trenches that don't have the halls of academia behind them, how is Jesus showing up to them? How are they living theophany, right? Where is yeah. 
where is God with them? And um, and so and I feel like I I stand in between both. I come from and very much still have a mindset of this this day to day living kind of thing, right? But I also have been privileged enough to go to school and have books, and and I don't have a theology degree or have ever went to you know seminary, but I've studied enough that. Now I have space enough that I can have thoughts and think about some of these things, but my heart and always kind of my body tends to orient itself towards what's going on here. How are these people, you know, thinking and being. And so in that, what I'd like for others to see and know about this, when we think about allies, I have a, I have a long list, but um, first is to not look away. Right. Yeah. And, and, to let the disparities break your heart. But as your heart is breaking, don't try to rush in and fix and um, solve the discomfort or solve the discomfort. Let the discomfort be. And do target your community and infiltrate it with love and hope, right? And so in doing so, don't get overwhelmed. Seek to understand the need and be concerned about what matters and who matters. And also know that not everything is your problem or your call to rescue and fix. And I think this is where when we are led by love, when we look at the eye of love and we turn our ears to the ear of love, love begins to invite us how to be a part, what that looks like. You know, it's not the same for everyone. Some people will have a passion to go out and be with the homeless or work the homeless cause, some people, the food or some people, it may just be writing and making others aware. There's, there's different ways that we dance and participate. So it's not always the same, you know, for those that might be looking for specific action, calls to action, um, attending your local, so civically, your local civically, so that you are knowing the people that are making decisions about your neighborhood, asking a law enforcement officer, if you can buy them lunch and have a conversation. You know, things like that, I think, are important. So I I think, I don't know, I think there are ways to get hands on. But realizing that you can acknowledge someone's pain and acknowledge someone's suffering without feeling like, oh, I need to come in and rush in and solve your pain. But then, Which is you- really about massaging my own guilt. Like, if <laughs> truth be known. I, I've been confronted on that, right? It's like, I would love to help. It's like, are you sure? <laughs> because maybe maybe you just want the relief of yeah. for your own discomfort like you're talking about, right? And and if I operate on that impulse instead of being led by love, then you, for sure it's going to be performative. There'll be saviorism. I've got to make a meme, you know, saying, hey, I was, I was with Felicia today on Zoom. So, you know. You should probably think more highly of it. I mean, these things happen at a. I wish it was more unconscious, but I'm worried that, it, that there's actually it's agenda driven. That you've given us a really beautiful term in in the term of companioning instead of rescuing. Yes. I think is it really that feels like it's a healing direction for all of this. Yeah, I I think that's it. And so the the part two of your question, Brad, is um, you know when you talk about that renewed sense of belonging or healthy attachment. Um, belonging to me is unconditional acceptance. Okay. Right. And so for me, I have a criteria for what that looks like. And um, so I'm going to be asking the question, where do I have value? Um, where do I add value? Where do I feel safe? Right. Where do I offer safety? Where am I free to express myself without censor? Where do I allow others the freedom to express their opinion without censor? So it's this reciprocity of back and forth. Mm. Where's the bread and wine being prepared and spread like a feast? Who's laid out the welcome mat? Who or where feels like home? And ultimately, is there a welcoming and mutuality, that reciprocity that I mentioned, and room for particularity and connection? And I think the thing that's important to know is Doug and I used to talk about this all the time and that people would say, you know, they would get 
fed up with something that happened with church or whatever. And then they would say, oh, we're going to start a church. or We're going to go to a church that's doing things differently or doing church differently. And then essentially it's just doing more of the same, you know? And, and so, and I've said this, even with talking about deconstruction, how some people might leave um, fundamental, you know, evangelicalism, and they still take the fundamental part into their deconstruction. Um, And that, and I think there has to be a complete unraveling in some regards. And Father Richard Rohr would always say, you include and transcend. So you're not, I'm not, I'm not advocating a discarding or a fragmentation or whatever. There is always going to be parts of your journey that come along with you, but the parts that no longer serve are the things that we detach from. And then we keep going in this journey with love. And so, so when you talk about building um, a renewed sense of belonging or a healthy community, trusted community, you have to, to really be able to sit internally and look at what are the parts that have been safe for you and good for you inside of past communities? And what are things that were different? And are you looking to rebuild this same type of container or are you open to something different? Some people are disabled. They're not going to be able to leave their home and go out somewhere. So maybe a cyber community of some kind is their only option. But when we say, oh, no, you can't do a cyber community, you have to go do it this way. Because, again, fundamentally, we believe this is the way it should be done. Then we sit on people who can't do it that way. Yeah. And and so I think we each have to really in our quiet time with spirit. That's why I have these questions for me. I'm, I'm looking with intention, like, where is this space where I have unconditional acceptance, where I can be me fully without being restricted? or diminished, or, um, you know, told this is not the way it can be. And I can allow someone else to be fully them. And for me, that's belonging. And that might happen in a bar. It might happen in church. It might, you know, I I think even when we deconstruct our ideas of where community happens, we can open ourselves up to more connection with people. Well, especially around meals. <laughs> Thinking of your Instagram account. <laughs> um, so, before we move to the last question, just a, another clarifying question. I don't know if you've worked through this. Maybe you've thought about it more than anyone. But I'm, I've been noticing uh, the need for a shift in me, and and then like even in my wife's church that would say it's affirming and welcoming of LGBT, LGBTQT people. That affirming and welcoming can still make it sound like I'm the host and you're the guest. And maybe that's initially a phase you have to pass through. But at some point, I could feel like my privilege makes them a permanent guest at my table. And when you use the word reciprocity, it felt to me like you've got some keys about overcoming that. I wish I had some keys about overcoming it. And I'm smiling because... (laughs) I, I might open a can of worms. And so, okay. but I have been wrestling this past week inside of Paul. And, you know, there's a scripture that everyone uses when they want to talk about unity. And it's the one about Paul uh, when he says, there's neither Greek nor Jew, blah, 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 and the breaking down of walls and the barriers. And I told Doug, I said, one of the things that really bothers me, and now I'm reading this through the lens as a, a Black person and not necessarily someone that's just catfished what the preacher has told me for years. Yeah. Even Paul, when he wrote that was still at a, I know I'm using a hierarchical cast kind of thing, but was still at a place of privilege above the Gentiles that he went to. Right. And so he's saying that, but he's inviting them into his world. And I know that even as he, he went into their world, I'm thinking missionally as well, because like a missionary, how Western missionaries have went, into Africa and India and different places for years, but with a sense of superiority that my way is the right way. Yep. And, and so you get to now no longer be a Gentile. You can come in and be this new creature, but I don't necessarily have far to go or anything to give up to be this person. 
And I think at one point he even says to maybe it was Timothy, like, do not be like the Gentiles as if, as if that's yeah. right? right. You know, I don't want to say years, but maybe it was years after Jesus died. Most followers of the way were still practicing most of the Jewish traditions and, and rules and laws, even the way they ate and things. And so there's this whole thing in there about, you know, in Acts when, um, Jesus, when G- Peter has the vision and Jesus tells him or the spirit tells him, you know, rise, kill and eat, don't call anything unclean. And so he goes then to the centurion's house, he eats. But then as time goes on, whenever they're around other Jews, they ate like Jews. They wouldn't, yeah. you know, and so there was this kind of thing that was happening. I'm, I'm struck. I'm taking that and I'm using it as a parallel to a lot of times a lot of the ideas and theories about race reconciliation or things like that, that people come up with most often in my circle, I'll say most often, they, they're come up with by white academicians, right? Yeah, so, yeah. But you are still inviting me really into your way of life and saying, this is the way we get to racial reconciliation, or this is the way we get, we get to healing. And so to your point, as long as we have this thing where uh, I am inviting you in with a sense of of pity, or I have something that you don't, and and that, then we don't get to reciprocity. Right. Reciprocity is about equity, you know. And I am, which for me always takes me back to a circle, which I, which is why I love the idea of the Trinity and this circle dance, because in the circle. I'm not higher or lower than you, you know, we are standing shoulder to shoulder. And so there is a sense of your power, your agency, my power, my agency. And, and in that circle, we don't have to compete or compare. We get to share amongst one another. And those that might have more liberally can give more liberally. And those that might not have in this way can give what they do have, you know, and, um, and it takes away our sense of insignificance. And everything. For one reason, I I remember this about my grandmother. She would often invite people to my great grandmother. She would often invite people to come eat at her house. She always had food, but she would never tell someone not to bring something. You were welcome to bring something. And so it was to preserve the dignity of the person that who you are and what you have is just as much worthy here as who I am and what I have. And it was no comparison of the haves. It was just a sharing liberally among one another. Oh, that's so good. Thank you for opening that. that I didn't see any worms come out of that. Okay, okay. There's a lot of gold. <laughs> we just found a treasury there. Thank you. I could just probe this for the a lot longer, but let's, I have to force myself to move to the, the this future now. <laughs> okay. And maybe it is, maybe you helped us segue to that uh, based in your observations and intuitions. What do you foresee or suspect we need to prepare for down the road? I, I don't just mean ominous stuff, but you know, whatever um, I'm having you put your, your profit hat on <laughs> I think it was Stephen Backhouse who suggested this language of what is being baked into our future right now and how we can we begin to ready ourselves for a healthy response rather than just knee-jerk reactions. I, I thought that was such a good question. You know, what immediately comes to mind is I have a friend um, named Bree Stoner, and she has a podcast called Unknowing. And this uh, season three of her podcast is Composting Christianity. And what specifically strikes me about her theme is that word compost. And so I I keep thinking in terms of this question that you're asking, Brad, and about manure and waste used as fertilizer to create the environment for new life to spring forth, right? Or how we just take scraps and create a byproduct. I, I can be very pragmatic in the things that I see particularly when things feel heavy and bleak and, um, you know, thinking about how we fix it all. And I can also be filled with hope for what's on the other side or what's even at work now in the middle of a crisis because I trust the work of love. Mm. And so when I think about composting or I think about, you know, manure, 
um, fertilizing an environment that creates growth, it leads me really to think about growth cycles and icebergs. And when we look at the growth cycle, say a plant or whatever, above ground, it's only a little sprout. Or with the iceberg, we're seeing the tip, tip of it. But underneath the surface, there's so much more going on. And for me, when I think of now leading to the future and how things are going, the one thing that I'm sure of is that love is always working. And so inside of that, how we have a, a more healthy response, I think, instead of a knee-jerk reaction is that internal, I manage me. You know, what does that look like internally? How do I stay grounded and connected to love? How do I stay open to hear how love is leading me, right? To live and to respond. And that's not a formula. It's like, again, it's more like a dance. So different tempos require different steps. And we don't necessarily know how we're being invited to participate until the music starts. And then I think what's required of us now is to have done the necessary preparation and discipline so that we have the skills and the presence of heart that when we need to show up, we can show up, right? And I'm reminded of Octavia Butler's story, The Parable of the Talents. I don't know if you've ever read it, but Lauren, this 15-year-old girl, her family's in uh, it's year 2025, so post-crisis. But in their time, Lauren's family, they have a garden, they've hidden money, the kids are taught survival tactics, so that when it becomes necessary for her to respond to what's in front of her, she was ready to do that. I don't want to give away the story because it's beautiful and people should read it, but our future is before us. And that's not to invite fear, but it's to invite us to ponder what disciplines and practices do we need to curate and develop to be ready for them. Well, I think uh, that that leads me to ask you to close out. It would be wonderful if you could just repeat for, for our listeners the thing that you pray in the morning. I just think that's that'd be a great way for us to, to sum up the interview. All that is eternal within me welcomes the wonder of this day. I turn my face, face to face to face. May love come to me. May love flow through me that I might be present to love's leading in this day. Ashe and amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Well, that should do the trick. <laughs> <laughs> What an amazing practice just of, you know, of welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time with me today, Felicia. I, I so value your friendship and guidance and wisdom. And also, it's just fun hanging out with you. Oh, same. Always. Thank you for having me. It's been great. My pleasure. Well, welcome back to uh, our, our third segment of this series on deconstruction and out of the embers. Uh, today's interview was with Felicia Morell, who is a real mentor of mine in the Black community. Uh, I hear the Black voice of God through her, and she's really guided me to sort of into the tutelage of, of people like Howard Thurman, and sh she would be a modern a modern uh, bearer of his kind of uh, message that the, the the kind of liberation we need goes even much deeper than just the external structures that oppress us. We need to be liberated from hatred and from fear and from dishonesty. And, and somehow, you know, even in the midst of very painful stuff, Felicia is able to, to be a voice of love and, she works so hard at including even the haters at her table, you know, that, and I know that's been, we talked about uh, how costly it can be to, to do this last week, but uh, for her, I see that cost every time she has to engage somebody on the top of topic of racism. So I, I just love being a student at who sits at her feet. And so 
I asked her on this episode, we, we're, we're of course doing the four big questions each, each time with our guests, but in this case, the third question I asked was, was about the current crises that are afoot in their communities. And of course, we, there's a lot to be said about that in terms of the Black community right now. But I want to bring it over to you. I'll lay out the question. It, this is under the sort of the title of the present. We did the past last time, the present this time. So in, in your world... I don't think you've explained um, who I am yet. If, if anybody's jumped oh, in and just heard Felicia, they wouldn't have, they won't know who oh, I am. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, this is being a bad host. I want to invite my friend and the <laughs> one who runs this podcast, Stephen Backhouse. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Tell you us set about the table. yourself. You, you set the table well. No, no, we don't need to talk about me any more than that. But I just realized, oh, yes, I'm talking, but I haven't been introduced yeah, to it. Very bad podcast etiquette. I'm so sorry. Well, we can just. <laughs> no, know. that's my fault. I'm the one who started talking before I was introduced. Well, I, I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a rookie. I'm a rookie. No, you set so, the table well. I'm welcome to the table. I found my, I found my tribe. Here we are. All right, let's go. Yeah. Well, what it does beg the question though, because when I talked to Felicia, I said, in the communities you represent, in the world you, your world. But maybe before I even finish the question, I have to ask you, who is your world, Stephen? Yeah. Well, I knew that this question was coming up. So I was thinking, what, what is my world? Because I definitely have one. It's just how do I put a word to it? Um, and you've had a few worlds, maybe. So I don't mind if you lay out the story. Well, I mean. Like, where'd you come from? I'm on a, I'm on a trajectory or on a, on a journey. Whereas I, I grew up in quite a strongly sort of evangelical world believed that Christianity was important, believed my evangelical friends and teachers who said you should pay attention to Jesus because Jesus is important. So I did. I started paying much more attention to Jesus and I discovered that Jesus and evangelicalism <laughs> don't have a lot in common. Oh my. Um, you know, particularly in terms of the politics and the cultural, the culture wars and the 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 mode or the stance and the things that like as Shane Claiborne says, I, I realized that that the things that Jesus cares about, evangelicals don't care about. And the things that the evangelicals care about, Jesus didn't care about. And it is just surprising how often that is a true statement, like almost at every moment, almost at every point, the things that Jesus really cared about, evangelicals don't. And I, could, I couldn't stop. I couldn't ignore that anymore. And I had to make a choice like, okay, well, what am I? And um, so, that, so what that, are you? <laughs> well, um, you know, part of the part of the. Uh, Part of that means is that it's very hard for me to really like. Uh, I'm not very institutionalized. Like I don't like movements very much, right? So, okay. Yeah. Um, it becomes quite hard. I remember ages ago, even somebody is somebody as like conservative as John Stott or something saying, "Oh, I'm quite open-handed about the word Christian. I don't mind. You know, I don't have to call myself a Christian. You know." And I thought, okay, that's that's interesting. I logged that in the back of my brain. And now I I'm quite happy to also say, well, I like the more I like Jesus, the less I feel I'm a Christian. Um, and I, I have it has a big, become a tainted brand, hasn't it? In that it sense. just seems not even the tainted brand. Like I just feel like it almost has always been that. Like because I'm I'm also a historian. I'm also a historian of thought. And it's not. And I'm not. I'm not saying that the modern day American evangelicals invented this problem. I mean, it goes way back, right? So it goes way back <laughs> so it's kind of like oh i think this edifice that christians have built christian civilization and the christian church and christian theology it is an internally coherent structure called christianity and it makes a lot of sense and it has its own agendas and whatever and its own morality and it doesn't often bear much similarity to the way of jesus and I just think, well, I actually like the way of Jesus more than I like Christianity. So it's hard for me to find labels of who I am. But I found that as I say this stuff, I find more of my people. Like I find people who come to me who also feel that way. Because it's not like we, we've we become these cynical people who just hate Christianity. And I mean, I, I don't even, I still believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection and the Trinity. Yeah, like I'm yeah. not, I haven't become like this kind of heretic. I just don't think I'm a Christian anymore. Could we say that you aspire to walk the Jesus way? Yeah, 
very much. I think Jesus is the solution to the world. Yeah. You know, I like I the I like the uh, I like the phrase the Jesus way because it, it is a way of being, right? And it's it's addressing one of the problems Kierkegaard, you know, he's like stop being a Christian, go become Christian, you know, in the in the, in that Jesus way sense. So you you're almost already you're addressing now I'm going to go into the question because you you've really hinted at it a couple layers of it. So so one is I'm I was at, I want to ask like what's the most What's what's the the great crises in your world that's presenting most intensely right now in terms of a challenge? So you're kind of going there already, but also the follow up to that is is as we go through this kind of deconstruction process. I mean that, that that's what I would regard your shift being at one level, but it can take you into a place out of out of a community you can't identify with anymore into a period of alienation yes, and wilderness. Sure. And is, it, you know, where are you at in that? And do you have any advice for, for how to renew a sense of belonging? I definitely, you know, I definitely noticed that the, the times I'm most sad at any given week, it would be the times I'm like in a sort of official Christian environment. And then I'll oh, come no. away. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll come away <laughs> just feeling just so sad and mad and alienated. Like I feel most alienated when I'm in the official Christian services at the moment. So it's Just not because, when you're by yourself after, it's when you're no, in it. No, oh, and it's not man. when I'm with my friends. It's not when, you know, it's not. So, and I've realized, oh yeah, there's something about that participation in the forms of life that are the stand up, sit down, read from this, say this, sing that, pray a certain way. That just the kind of forms of life, like we talked about Wittgenstein last week, that Wittgenstein would call them the games of life that you play in. Uh, and every culture has it and you always have to use that to be a part of that culture and i just find myself less and less enthralled by the by that churchy kind of culture and I, and i and it's but it's largely because it doesn't i've been to church services including you know local churches in my area where i've sat in the service and i've literally counted how many times jesus gets mentioned um in a half hour sermon i was at recently how many times do you think jesus was mentioned in half an hour sermon oh surely 10 zero zero oh, yeah no. so and and this is and and the preacher was a friend of mine who's a very keen you know evangelical and and i know that like if you told him oh do you realize you didn't mention jesus once he would be you know he would yeah, but what, be shocked. what's going on there but that happens all the time and i was like yeah this happens all the time actually once you start to notice it you, you can't stop seeing it and you realize oh yeah that's because the references are all to christianity they're not to Jesus. So the service is all about promoting this thing called Christianity. It's not about the way of Jesus at all. So I just find that is alienating when I'm around that. And it's not because I hate the people. It's just because I feel like it's a, it's a bit like, I don't like, I don't like, I don't know. I don't like a, a football very much. I don't understand the, the sport of football, American or British. I don't understand football. So when I'm around a bunch of people talking about football, I don't hate them. I'm not despising them. I just feel alienated with them. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I feel a but, bit like that. The, it's a bit opposite though too, isn't it? Because part of what alienates is you is because of how well you do well, yeah, know. That's probably <laughs> true. I, I've kind of, it's kind of like, I'm so aware of the source. It'd be like going to watch football um and 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 i was a historian of sport and i'm like this isn't even remotely like what football was meant to be <laughs> but you're all loving something opposite and i just feel alien so and then i but in terms of my people i do find that as you mm, as you say these if you don't suffer in silence and if you're not horrible about it you do start to find other people who say it like if if you speak the truth in love as christians say then uh, it is possible that other people will come out of hiding because they feel safe. Okay, so, and then that's where you might find some some new healthy attachments. So I've noticed that other people have said, I also feel this way. And it's surprising how many people, actually. And it's surprising the kind of people. And then you realize, oh, yeah, I'm not alone in this. There is something in the... There's a, it's a spirit of the age. It's a something of the moment. There are a lot of really good people who love Jesus who cannot keep going to church anymore. And, and there's something to pay attention to. 
And so I'm kind of wondering whether those are my people, although yeah. we're, not, we're very loosely defined and we don't have a label. So, well, it's, you've inter- you've brought up something so interesting because in my, in my book, I was ve- I am very concerned for people who have who've who've left the church and gone into alienation. But you're describing how you already had the alienation. Yeah, no, while you sure. were part of it, that's... alienation was what sent me out. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah, intense. Yeah. Just feeling empty. Just feeling like mm-hmm. I don't feel known. I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard and I couldn't ever express to other Christians what I feel within this environment because it's but not now you're expressing it like and finding people that where they can resonate with yeah so you, you start to have uh you start to have dinners and you invite people over or whatever and you start to just be honest with each other and that's when you start to notice oh yeah lots of other people feel this way but yeah uh, I want to take a moment to like share quite a different story. So for, for me also coming out of evangelicalism, but um, where I ended up was the Eastern Orthodox church. And and I want to share something great and something terrible about that. So unlike the service you attended, um, you can guarantee that if you come to my service, um, you'll hear the name Jesus all throughout. Um, I'm not even allowed to preach on anything except the gospel reading for that day and what Jesus did and how that gospel reading is the gospel. And you'll hear the word mercy or merciful 154 times in 120 minutes. So over once a minute, you're being reminded. So, so to me, that's wonderful. There's a safeguard in this where every single week we are singing like the Beatitudes together every single week. We're, we're singing the Magnificat, Mary's song about justice and injustice every single week. So all of that is, that's kind of a safeguard. And then, and here's the tragic thing. So why the hell is Patriarch Carol, the, the, the leader of the, the biggest portion of the Eastern Orthodox Church, absolutely playing the role of the Antichrist right now? How did, why did that liturgy that he leads not preserve him i don't get it i really don't get it It, it's man like what what the heck just before we have to rush off what so who are your friends now who do you hang out with what do you do well you talk to i mean i i have a lot of different friends and lots of different stations of life but when you talked about crisis one of the things that i immediately thought of was that i have a set of younger friends so people in their 20s um who themselves would fit the the deconstruction demographic and it is surprising to me how many of them it's not really because they've become cynical rationalists it's because they just don't really recognize jesus in the church cultures that they grew up in and and i have and i do kind of feel like that's a crisis as it were um not because i think they should not because i think they should join church again but because it's like, yeah, there's a rupture. There's something got broken off here. Uh, I think it got broken off because it needed to, but I don't know what to do with all of these young people who are lonely now. And I mean, I've had more than one young person in their 20s talk to me with tears in their eyes, you know, about this. And and yeah, that's a crisis. Yeah. For me, the crisis is slightly different. The ones I'm running into never, had never met them. Like they grew up in churches. Yeah. And it's easy to leave. But I'm like, but don't leave Jesus. So like, I don't know Jesus. I don't know who that is. Yeah. Yeah. How do you meet him? Well, you you need a living connection. How do I get that? You know, so my book goes into that and uh, they can read the last 50 pages. or something. I don't, I, I guess, I mean, that's a thing, a question I don't have an answer for is like, how will the message of Jesus get out there if people aren't going to church anymore? But then again, people have been going to church for centuries and the message of Jesus hasn't been getting out either. So yeah, it's or not it's like been getting out in other ways. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's not like we're leaving behind this wonderful thing. That's working all fire, you know, firing on all cylinders. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, we're, we're leaving behind something that wasn't doing a very yeah. good job. Anyway, yeah. so. And hopefully there's an actual Jesus out there who's yeah. calling people to follow him. Yeah, and it's like, well, what what would that look like? You know, if you really were the 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 guy on the margins, if you really were the one that was going to the mighty were going to be pulled down and the humble lifted high, if you really were that wilderness prophet or the the mystic in the desert, what would your movement look like? 
Well, it probably wouldn't look like what the kinds of things you and I do or feel we should do every Sunday. Right? So it's just we just got to face that. It's the cognitive dissonance again, which is a moment of crisis. But anyway, yeah, very good. Thanks, Brad. Well, that's the present. We'll get to the future next week when we gather. It's good to be with Ooh, you. I've got to start thinking. So we're going to be thinking like what's coming down in the future. That's right. Put on your profit hat, man. All right. <laughs> See you next week. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patron page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.